This is the Monday, August 7, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Germany's morning hate in this war takes the form of massed aerial attacks on the defenses of London. So this is now a familiar sight and a familiar sound. At regular hours, the Nazi bombers come over, heavily protected by fighters. You can clearly see the Messerschmitts maneuvering above the bombers. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine takes flight into the skies of Germany as war clouds gather on the horizon. We'll meet two very different women, united in history by their determination to soar in the brand new and male-dominated world of human flight. These two women, Hannah Reich and Melita von Stauffenberg, shared talent, courage, and the looks that made them naturals for Hitler's propaganda campaigns to depict a master race. But they were more than pictures on posters or novelty acts at aerodromes. And one of them had a Jewish grandfather. Her father had been born Jewish. And this was a fact she obviously had to keep secret as the National Socialist State passed racial purity laws and made life hell for Jewish citizens of Germany. Our flight commander on this journey is Claire Mully, who brings us The Women Who Flew for Hitler. A true story of soaring ambition and searing rivalry. Her previous books are The Woman Who Saved Children, a biography of Egalantine Jeb, and The Spy Who Loved, The Secrets and Lives of Christine Granville. Granville was Britain's first female special agent of the Second World War. A little breaking news on that title, The Spy Who Loved has been optioned by Universal Studios, So read the book now, and we can compare it to the movie later, which, if you're anything like me, you love to do. For more on our guest, visit ClaireMully.com, follow her at ClaireMully on Twitter, or toss a like to Facebook.com slash ClaireMullyAuthor. Her name is spelled C-L-A-R-E-M-U-L-L-E-Y. Okay, now that we've strapped into our gliders, put on our silk scarves, and pulled on our flight helmets, let's join Claire Mully and meet the women who flew for Hitler. I'm joined on the line from the United Kingdom by Claire Mully, author of The Women Who Flew for Hitler, a true story of soaring ambition and searing rivalry. Thank you for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for having me on. It was really a pleasure to fly with these two women and get this 
inside look at Germany as it's becoming the Nazi state that we know today, it's difficult in 2017 to separate those two things. You assume everybody knew, you assume everybody was dedicated to what we now know, the atrocities, the crimes against humanity. So this took us in not only for a different view of citizens, but the women citizens who people kind of forget about. Listeners who follow us on Twitter or Instagram may have seen us sending back and forth a picture of the women who flew for Hitler sitting on the bar at the Perfect Pint on West 45th Street in Manhattan. I just put it there because I was carrying it home. That was I didn't have a bag that day. The cover features these two women set off as if by a propeller with a swastika in the center. People were surprised to hear that women played this role in Germany. The cover really drew people's eyes. It was with a bunch of people from the news industry, former colleagues from cable, and they asked so many questions about it. It really drew them in, and one of them did say that. She said, you know, we never think of women in the Nazi state. We never think of the effect on them in Nazi Germany as Hitler is consolidating power. Just how did Hannah and Melita get their start in the air, and how did they fit into this system as Hitler consolidates power? Well, I think it's amazing that this story isn't more known because it's so extraordinary. Um, But these two women were born about 10 years apart and had very different backgrounds. But the thing that brought them together was flight. And after the First World War, under the Treaty of Versailles, one of the terms was that the Air Force should be disbanded and the planes were literally sawn apart and hacked apart. And uh, Melita's uncle had been a First World War fighter ace in the war, very highly decorated, and it was a friend of Ernst Udet. And so she was pretty shocked by this. I think it was pretty bracing for the whole country. And one of the things that happened was that they banned motorized flight in Germany for a while. As a result, gliding became, I don't know, sort of like the phoenix that rose from the ashes of the former Air Force. And it became this really aspirational sport for the country's youth. And Germany did very well at it. They started competing internationally and winning prizes. So it was a real source of pride for the country as well. So Hannah and Melita both used to go down and watch mostly young men risking their necks for the sort of honor and glory of flight um, in these flimsy wooden canvas gliders. But the women weren't expected to actually do any flying themselves, of course. They were meant to be in a sort of support role. But neither Hannah or Melita were going to be grounded. And eventually both of them took their turn. Melita first. There's this wonderful story of her stuffing her long dark hair into one of those tight-fitting little leather flying caps (laughs) and eventually getting a chance to go into a glider and balancing on the wooden plank that served as a seat. And two teams of young men in knitted jerseys would pull the rubber toe cords down the hill, pulling the glider behind them. And then she'd lift on the stick and cast off the toe and sort of soar away, away from the contours of the world. And she was, from the start, completely obsessed by flight. She said that she had this longing for freedom that flight gave her. But also, of course, it gave the opportunity to serve her country and win medals and and restore some honor to her country as well. Hannah is nine years younger than Melita, and she had a different childhood. She was alive, but only a toddler during the end of the First World War. And I think her experiences of childhood was more the depression that followed the war with raging inflation and so on. And she saw the Nazi regime as coming in and revitalizing the country and providing jobs, and she was very keen to be part of it. So when she learned to glide about 10 years later, um, she was part of a, a youth group learning. She was the only girl again. She was absolutely brilliant immediately. They nicknamed her Stratosphere. She got the hang of it. She was the best in the class. 
and she saw flight as a way of aligning herself with the regime and the glory of this new Nazi Germany. So different, but in the same field. And that would have been the only Germany that she knew, really, as an adult. So this explains a little bit of their separation and Melita having some of that cynicism towards the regime, whereas Hannah is dedicated to it. It's yes. Germany and the Nazi state, is exactly as Hitler wanted, are synonymous in her mind. They are. They are the same thing. So for her, well, she has seen the, the misery, the grief, the unemployment, the poverty of the post-war years and the recession. So she's got that. And then she's got this new Germany that Hitler's ruling in. And what she sees is bunting and parades and chanting and marches. Whereas Melita comes from a more aristocratic family. She's got all these Prussian pre-Nazi Germany links. And the Germany that she adores is one before the Nazis come in, where Hannah sees bunting. Melita sees oppression, prejudice coming into law, violence endorsed by the state and so on. So very different pictures of that new regime. And to take a step back there to them flying, to them learning to fly, the 20s and 30s, if the planes that we see in the Great War aren't frightening enough or aren't intimidating enough to think about climbing into one of those today, we climb into a 747 and as modern people and we really are uncomfortable in our seat if we hit some turbulence. They're mm -hmm. in gliders. They're being towed. They're being shoved off the edge of cliffs. It's amazing. And as they're developing technology later for the Luftwaffe, there, I believe it's Melita who's taking those nosedives or the bombs, something that the, oh. the Nazis innovated with. And there's a man that comes, I guess, a general, I suppose. You name him, of course, in The Women Who Flew for Hitler. But he's saying, who is that pilot? Why is he doing that dangerous thing? And, of course, he thinks women can't possibly be flying. It never occurs to him. And then she lands and gets out of the plane, and he's just shocked. I guess it's a Stuka, maybe, is it? Yeah, that's right. It's a, yeah. a Junker A7 Stuka dive bomber. Yeah, they're both incredible pilots. And so Melita would do, she worked on the development of dive sites and dive breaks, that sort of thing. So she's developing this plane, the Stuka, that is really what, what makes the Blitzkrieg so effective and so terrifying. They're the planes that came screaming down. They had sirens on the back of their wings, so they emitted this terrible noise as they came in, terrifying the people below that they were firing at. They would come in as bombers as well. And she developed the mechanics of that plane. And she, what she would do is undertake these near vertical test dives down. And sometimes the pressure involved in taking such a dive would be enough to make pilots black out, so they would actually lose consciousness. But as the plane comes in towards Earth, they slow naturally, the air pressure increases and so on, and they would hope to regain consciousness before they pulled out. But a number of them didn't, and there were, <laughs> there were wow. a huge number of fatalities on this test program. To do one of these dives was considered, you know, very courageous. But to go back repeatedly as part of the development program and retake these dives was considered heroic. And Melita didn't just do one or two. She would do up to 15 of these test dives a day, then go back to the drawing board because she was the chief engineer and do the workings out herself. None of the other engineers did their own tests. And then she'd go back and do some more dives. So she would do over 2,000 of these during the year. It was absolutely unheard of. And the Nazis were so astounded that she was a woman. They started postulating perhaps maybe blood was different and that meant it was thinner and they didn't black out so easily or perhaps this, that and the other. Mm. Always looking for biological determinism in it, you know. But no, she was just absolutely determined. Of course, there was a very strong reason why she was determined to make herself uniquely valuable to the regime. And when reading this book, by the way, with two characters that in the beginning, okay, they're both on the cover together, the woman who flew for Hitler, they can maybe blur together until we get to know them. 
I found myself early on thinking of Hannah having the two ends in her name, being that true believing Nazi to mm. separate her from Melita, who is not so dedicated as we talked about. She's older. She has more experience. She has this Prussian family, the aristocrats that Hitler was very much against, that he was jealous of, and that he blamed to an extent for the First World War among the many people that he blamed. Mm. You write in The Women Who Flew for Hitler, quote, Looking austere while taking bold action would remain Melita's modus operandi throughout life. What sort of person did it take to fly in those very early days of airplanes and gliders? Not only this fearlessness, but what did you have to go through just to learn this? It's so new. Flight is changing every minute. What did you have to do to become a person that knew enough to fly? Well, it was incredibly difficult for the women. They, it was just assumed that they wouldn't be doing this in the first place. Young men were very actively encouraged to become pilots. There were lots of sort of Hitler youth with a gliding angle activities. They would make model planes and then they would go on little test flights and there were classes for them and so on. But no girls were expected to be part of that. And Melita had to fight very much. Her first flight in a guider that I described was purely a one-off because she had forced her way in, really. And then she went off and studied aeronautical engineering, which is, again, unheard of for a woman, completely sort of radical. And she faced a lot of prejudice because of, she was a woman in those classes. Um, but she was so brilliant that she showed them, you know, what for. Um, and then she insisted on, in all of her spare hours, going out, learning, learning how to fly engine power planes. She pulled a few strings because her uncle, who'd been this fighter ace in the First World War, knew Udet. So Udet would take her up in his plane and, and so on. So she really fought tooth and nail. Hannah comes along about 10 years later, and she actually manages to get on a class for glider pilots, which hadn't been open to Melita at all. Hannah is the only woman among the men. And in fact, one of the men involved in that is Werner von Braun, who later became the very famous Nazi rocket scientist. And they were friends right from that period in their youth. Hmm. And her father is opposed to it. In fact, he, she's obsessed with gliding. She goes down, she's sky school and goes down to watch these young guys flying off these perilous slopes. And her father says, no, you've got to go to finishing school. You've got to learn this. You've got to learn that. And he says, if you do all your studies and you complete them and you don't talk about gliding for the two years of your coursework, then I'll let you take a gliding course as your reward. He thinks, of course, she'll just forget about it in that time, you know, move on, get interested in boys or whatever. But Hannah takes him at his word. So she works pretty hard for her and manages to pass her courses. And then she says, I'm ready for my reward. So he says, oh, I've got you this fabulous gold watch. <laughs> and she's not having that. Um, I think he's forgotten about it, but she insists, and he's a, he's a man of honor, man of his word, so he reluctantly allows her to take this gliding course. And, of course, she's by far the best on the course, absolutely blows him away. So she's then put on a sort of, becomes close friends with some of the leaders of gliding in pre-war Germany who really enable her to use some of the most pioneering planes they had at the time. Perilous machines, I've got to say, but absolutely brilliant opportunity. Good warning for parents that you may not expect to find in a book called <laughs> The Women Who Flew for Hitler. But if you're going to make that sort of promise, be uh, prepared to be called on it. And maybe that's a good test because it really did show how passionate she was about it. It wasn't something she just enjoyed sitting out and watching the birds and watching the planes and she would eventually grow out of it. This really was a calling and a passion for her. Yeah, both of them were completely fanatical about flying, and both of them were absolutely brilliant pilots, as well as real patriots with a strong sense of honor and duty. That they shared. In The Women Who Flew for Hitler, you lay out some of these parallels as those about their passion between Melita and Hannah. 
One is that both have incidents where they're forced to land across the German border, a potential international incident. And this is something that you write about very dramatically in the book. You mm -hmm. could really feel you're in the cockpit there and saying, you can't see through the clouds. Where am I going to end up landing? It's really a potent moment. They're both potent moments. What were the consequences for them? And how did they manage to keep on flying after doing something that was such a dangerous thing? Well, this is, for both of them, they're separate incidents. I mean, their life mm. is full of drama, I must say. But anyhow, these incidents both take place as we're moving towards the war and uh, crossing international airspace was considered you know, a terrible thing with huge repercussions. So um, Hannah is out gliding in a new, brand new pioneering glider. And she goes high. She actually sets a world record on this, uh, on this <laughs> flight she takes um, for women's endurance, I believe. Um, but she gets carried away. She goes over the Alps and she's in the mountains and she suddenly realizes she's got to land and she ends up coming down across the border. And when she gets there, she's been forced down in a hailstorm terrible conditions. The glider is fairly pitted. She's only wearing a light summer dress because she'd left Germany in the afternoon when it was bright and sunny and hadn't foreseen this terrible storm. So she's frozen. She's blue. She staggers away. She manages to land on a slope near a resort where there have been skiers. She staggers into the hotel and manages to call a friend who um, comes over secretly in his plane, also crossing the border, to drop down a tow rope for her. And she just gets everyone on side in the hotel. So all the former skiers, all the staff get out and they hook up her glider and they help tow her off. They fix it up to the plane and so on. Um, and they get her away. And she gets away with it. She's got lots of friends in high places. Really, she's seen as a sort of a champion and a brave woman. It's okay. Thank goodness. For Melita, it's a very different story. She is out flying a rather older model of a plane. She gets, again, caught in some storms and she lands on the wrong side of the border. She doesn't know where she's landed. Um, she calls to a couple of guys to help her. And when they answer her in French, she's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so she, again, she's running very low on fuel, but she manages to take off and just gets enough height to go over the border fence and goes on for a couple of fields and then crashes into this field. It's a plowed field, but unfortunately it's dark and the ruts are running the other way and the plane overturns and she's caught down in a ditch and she just feels the last bit of fuel that was in the tank running over her body and she's stuck there. And eventually she hears a couple of German farmers. So she calls out to them. I think half her terror is that she's going to be dug out by these farmers who are smoking cigarettes and refuse to put their cigarettes out. They refuse oh to listen God. to her because she's a woman and they're wondering where the pilot can be because obviously as a, as a woman, it couldn't be her. Yeah, right. So she eventually they dig her out. But it's been noted that she'd crossed the border and made a stop there. And she's banned from flying, which is like banning her, you know, this is her raison d'etre. She needs to fly as much as she needs to breathe. So she, again, tries to call in various favours. She gets in touch with Udet and other people. And it's pretty hard work. But eventually... I think they know that they need her. She's a brilliant aeronautical engineer. She's working on this really important stuff. So eventually she gets back her license. But uh, dangerous stuff for both of them. You talk about a glider, first of all. It, you have to just remember that people are flying with no ability to change course or anything. And then you say, well, at least she can fly, Melita. At least she has an engine. But then, oh, you get flipped over and there's gasoline on you. And she's thinking how terrible this is going to be if I go up in flames. There's just such a stoicism about her, about these challenges of flying. I'm sure that she's terrified at the time, but keeps her head. Yeah. It really reads almost like a novel. People have to remind themselves, I think, if they're anything like me, that this is all true. This is a history, not a novel, not a even a narrative novel. Fiction. I mean, it's true that they went through all of these things, these amazing trials and these things that to put themselves 
in those situations just because they wanted to serve, yes, but they also just loved to fly. It's something that, as you said, and you say in the book, that that was just something that was in their blood. It was as natural as breathing. They they had to get off the ground. I do think that if, if I was writing a novel, people would say it's far-fetched. You know, when I was doing my research and I found these stories that hadn't been told or about their background, who they were, what they did, you would imagine it, it was too much if you were inventing it. But because it's real, literally the hairs would be going up on my arms, you know. And I got so involved in it. When I was doing research, I thought, well, I, I need to experience what a glider flight is like. So I did. I went up on a, in a glider flight, and that's in a modern machine, you know, very beautiful, quite a lot of control to it, and much better than the sort of equipment they would have had in their gliders. And even then, I've got to say, I found it absolutely terrifying. I and uh, I don't know, in retrospect, I suppose it's best not to make lots of notes in a little notebook while you're flying in the air. We had to come down quite quickly. But uh, it gave me an insight into how perilous it feels. And they really feel like they're the birds up there. You have many reflections in the book, too, where they're coming down and they're talking about how alive they feel part of the some of these planes that are really designed well at one point there's a plane made specifically for one of them and it just feels like an extension and i think if you are fortunate enough to have a passion like that know what it is and be able to pursue it you can relate to that never mind the state that they're serving as hitler comes to power and the nazi regime starts the wars and all of that they're just two people that are pursuing their passion and they would have done that wherever they were they just had the bad fortune to be in a country where the nazis take over and that ends up being the government they're serving and trying to find their way under at least for melita it was bad fortune for hannah she was a true believer so she was happy to be there i was gonna say yeah hannah was delighted to be aligning herself with the rise of this nazi regime melita is a very very different picture but i do think it's important you know it's such a dramatic story there are so many incidents where they nearly perish or they crash or it's easy to think it's just a series of these fantastic anecdotes but it actually it's set in this very important time and that informs both of them and that is really why this story is so important you cannot divorce it from the history that surrounds them and as you say melita not a fan of the nazi regime but for hannah it was really important that it was part of her self-identity right to her core you talked about those important moments there and one of those most infamous crimes of the nazis was kristallnacht the night of broken glass that erupts into this orgy of violence arson the destroying of jewish businesses how did this escalation illustrate that separation between Melita and Hannah in The Women Who Flew for Hitler? And why is it that Melita is so against the regime? Right. Well, Crystal Nut was this appalling evening uh, where shops, Jewish shops were smashed. It's called Crystal Nut. It's the night of broken glass from all the glass from the broken shop windows. Synagogues were burned. And also there were a number of murders as well. People, you know, old couples brought dragged from their houses in their in their nightwear, because it was evening time, and um, beaten up, spat at, and worse, on the streets. Just dreadful. And Hannah happened to be out on a work party that evening in a town, and she witnessed some of these events. And some credit to her here. She does. She is horrified at witnessing the witness, the violence. And at one point, she, she shouts out to a, a group of youths. Um, she says... This is dreadful. If the if the Fuhrer knew, he would be appalled by your behaviour. Someone get the police. And some of the other, some of her colleagues have to pull her away, quieten her down, because they know very well this is unofficially sanctioned mm. by the state, even encouraged. And so later she gets reprimanded. But she is such a useful pilot to them at this point that the regime lets her off. I think anyone else would probably have, you know, been arrested, severely disciplined. But Hannah gets let off. But after that, she never again vocalizes criticism for their regime. So 
I think perhaps it's worse that she knows that this is wrong and yet is prepared to justify it, make excuses in her mind. It almost makes it worse than had she have just been a sort of blind thug in the first place, which she's not. Um, she chooses willingly to look the other way. Melita has a very different response. Part of her family background is, although she was raised as a Protestant, her father had been born Jewish. And this only becomes relevant to the family in 1935 when the Nuremberg laws come through that enshrine racial prejudice in German law. And at that point, she knows, um, she doesn't know ultimately the end of Nazi racist policy, but she can see the violence of the regime and she can see prejudice being enshrined in law and she can see the direction of travel. So at this point, she knows that she is against this regime, but she also knows that she and her family are in danger. And so she decides that what she's going to do is make herself, and that's why she works so hard with the Stuka dive bombers. Nobody else can do the work she's doing, the engineering work and the test dives. She's a unique, and she is therefore uniquely valuable to the regime. So she applies for this equal to Aryan status, it's called. And she uses her values of the regime as a way of protecting herself and also the lives of her family as well. So when they eventually, some years later, give her this status, she actually rejects it because she will only accept it if it's for her entire family. So she's sort of done a deal with the devil, if you like, at this point. So very, very different perspectives these women have. We spoke a little bit about that offer of near Aryan status and also that idea of People saying who are true believers, if only Hitler knew about this, if only the Fuhrer knew, in Nathan Stoltzfus's book, Hitler's Compromises, Coercion and Consensus in Nazi Germany, if listeners want to go back and hear that in the archives and get an idea of how there really is this seduction of the German people that Hitler wants to do something with them, and he does want to separate himself from these acts of violence. So the people are looking at him as this cult of personality figure. And when anything is going wrong in Germany, when there's violence or whatnot, people say, well, if he knew, he wouldn't put up with this. He, he must not know. Someone has to tell them. And in fact, there's one part where Hannah does go and try to tell him about something and Hitler really doesn't want to listen. And she's just shocked because she was just so sure that if she could just get to him and tell him, he would, of course, agree with her. It's a fascinating study of the regime to look at it from her point of view. As you said, it's not possible and we don't want to divorce it from what's happening here. But when you see her sitting there with Hitler and she's telling him uh, it's about introducing suicide bombers and he doesn't want to do that in planes. And he says, no, that's not, it's a waste of the German people. It's a, another thing in Professor Stoltzfus's book that mm. he has kind of a limited resource in the German people that he wants to conserve. He doesn't believe in them committing suicide. And she's just so shocked because she has this mental image of Hitler that if he knew he wouldn't be doing these things. And that's why after there are these atrocities, they all come to light after the war. True believers like Hannah refuse to believe them. They say, well, Hitler couldn't possibly have known he wouldn't have allowed it. But Hannah herself has access, doesn't she? I mean, Towards the end of the war, um, she and Melita have a mutual friend um, called Peter Riddell, who is, he was a pre-war gliding world champion. He's a very well-known celebrity, and he's been an air attache for the regime in America and then in Scandinavia during the war. And while he's out there, he gets access, or he gets given by a resistance group, some papers which show photographs and facsimiles of orders signed by Himmler for the Maginot concentration and extermination camp. And he takes copies of these papers. He smuggles them in his diplomatic bag to Germany when he comes back. And he confronts Hannah with it. Because she says, oh, I've had a wonderful dinner with Himmler. It was great. And he says, this is your Himmler. Look what he's doing. 
and she absolutely refuses to believe it. So she has the evidence in front of her, but she cannot believe it. Eventually, because he's a good friend and they have this huge argument, she actually takes these papers to Himmler and she has this opportunity here to do something. She puts them on the table and says, what do you think about this? And he looks at her and he doesn't even deny it. What he says is, do you believe this? And that is enough for her to take as a denial. She believes at that point. She says, oh, of course I don't. How terrible. And 10 minutes later, they're talking about his choice of crockery. So she goes in with an opportunity here to open her eyes. Or if not, even if she thought, well, OK, I'm obviously not going to be um, able to debate this with Himmler. But afterwards, she could have taken that information, done something useful with it. She had access to planes. She could have done something. But she doesn't. She just says, oh, yes, he denied it. He's great. And she's fine with the regime again. You know, she's so willing to look the other way, even when she sees the information. She really hears what she wants to hear in those situations. She and does, exactly. As you said, very multi-layered. It's not just one crash or one exciting dive bomb after another. It's really a story of two people and the mind of these two women. Imagine being a woman who is totally dedicated to this cause and all you want to do is fly. So you flush everything out and people do that too. That's not a great way to be where you just ignore everything else and you'll do anything to get to that goal, whether it's money or power or the, getting into the seat of a glider. That's a real study of her. I'm, star I'm staring at her here on the cover as we talk and she just kind of keeps drawing my eye about that. And you say somebody that you admire so much for their bravery and yet you see them as a really flawed person when they're doing all yeah. of these things that when you have a book like The Women Who Flew for Hitler, you just want to yell at the pages and have them hear you back through history and say, <laughs> come on, I want to be able to admire you. I want to be able to maybe put your picture on my wall if I'm a, a young woman flying. But the things that you're doing when you have the opportunity to do the right thing are just so repugnant. I can't do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's what makes it so fascinating, really. You know, you want to read these women. There is no question they were brilliant pilots and their courage is absolutely extraordinary after appalling crashes after terrible injuries they're back in the cockpit that's an admirable trait and yet how important is it that we can see that even potential heroes like this can be so flawed certainly hannah we have to remember we have to see her in that context some of the past stories about hannah she's generally remembered as being this heroine but for the wrong side and if things had been different she could have been a great woman well no i mean one of the extraordinary things i found during my research were handwritten letters she wrote even many years after the war which really show she was still deeply anti-semitic she had massive racial prejudice she was quite famous after the war and had many opportunities she wrote her memoirs she gave a lot of interviews but she never condemned hitler or the nazi state and she would wear her iron cross even though it was illegal she was always proud to the end of her life she was a fanatical nazi and that is a core part of who she is and we need to remember that as well my guest on the line from the united kingdom is claire mully and her book is titled the Women Who Flew for Hitler, A True Story of Soaring Ambition and Searing Rivalry. That's the U.S. cover and the U.S. subtitle. It's a little bit different in the U.K. where you'll find it under the subhead, The True Story of Hitler's Valkyries. For more on our guest, visit ClaireMully.com, follow her at ClaireMully on Twitter, or toss her a like to Facebook.com slash ClaireMullyAuthor. Her name is spelled C-L-A-R-E-M-U-L-L-E-Y. In their starred review, Booklist calls The Woman Who Flew for Hitler, quote, absolutely gripping. Mully's double portrait is a reminder that there are many more stories to tell from this oft-examined time. Claire, the idea that there are still more stories to tell about the war, even so many decades later, 
brings about the question of how you came across these two flyers the very first time and the information you needed to make the woman who flew for Hitler a complete portrait must have been something you had to really dig for. It hadn't been thrown in people's faces, maybe partially here because mm. they wanted to talk about Hannah as this ideal and people are always looking kind of for the good Nazi, especially after the war when we're looking to turn Germany against the Soviets and brush the war aside, all, the whole West is. So how did you first learn about them and how did you start researching them so that you could write The Women Who Flew for Hitler? Well, I've always been very interested in women in war. My last book was about the first woman to work as a special agent for Britain in the Second World War. And I wanted to look at the other side. In some ways, it's fairly easy to write about a great heroine we can all back. It takes something slightly different to look at, you know, how did Hitler manage to harness all these resources in his country to support his terrible ends? And that's something we need to understand as well. And I thought it was fascinating that the women who weren't conscripted weren't expected to take this role. If they were then serving Hitler, they had really made some choices. And that, to me, was absolutely fascinating. So I'd heard about Hannah. She's the better known of the two women. I've seen her, you know, presented pretty much as this, you know, brave but politically naive person. was fascinated to dig a little deeper and find out there was a different story to tell there. But I didn't know about Melita, and I came across her during my research. And it was absolutely, I mean, I could not believe that there was another woman in the same role. And part of the reason we don't know about her is because Hannah had tried to erase her memory from history. She had tried to prevent an earlier biography of her being written. And there was no love loss between this woman. And I think Hannah wanted to control her image as the Nazi test pilot. Then I found out about this woman, found out that her father was born Jewish. I mean, it's extraordinary enough that these two women, women any time in the 1930s and 40s flying is quite an incredible story, that they were doing so inside the male-dominated world in Nazi Germany is almost unbelievable. But one of them could be considered by that state to be half Jewish, just took this to a completely new realm. It was extraordinary. But of course, she's not really been looked at that much. So I was really lucky that I managed to get in touch with some of Melita's relatives in Germany and a couple of people who'd done some, a couple of German war historians who had done some work on her as well. And it was amazing. I met her family and they, they kind of interviewed me. They wanted to know that I was going to do a good job. So the first meeting, I was one side of a table and they were sat on the other side and they were asking me these questions. And eventually, after a couple of hours, they said, OK, we trust you to do a good job. And they opened up their family archive and they had all these incredible papers in there, letters and photographs that no one's seen. And one of the documents, the one that really was astounding for me to find in my research for the book was Melita's handwritten 1943-1944 diaries in which she talks about some of the most important events, some of the most famous events of the war, which films have been made about and so on. And here is a new, completely unseen record of that event, written from the perspective of a woman who was right at the heart of things. Um, absolutely fascinating to have those details. Imagine getting those in your hands. That's a moment that I think every author dreams of when they write history, right? Absolutely. You're going to have a diary by one of the figures because she is forgotten. And even today when people read the book, they're still drawn to Hannah because I guess it's a combination of just this really big PR campaign she does for herself and also the fascination with the idea that 
she's a Nazi, so people are fascinated by them. But the New York Post review that they wrote was very praiseworthy, but it focused almost exclusively on Hannah. And Melita is this figure that she's kind of the good one because you, of course, root for her. You realize she has this secret. She's worried not only about herself, but about her whole family. She has this high profile as part of her wanting to fly. She loves to fly. She wants to have this love, but she certainly doesn't want to have fulfilling her love impact her family and lead to her family being sent to a concentration camp. It's just an amazing story. And to be able to have found that diary of Melita and say, ah, here it is. Here is what I can use to balance the story because Hannah has been trashing her here. She's able to have the last word in so many things. She's also against her because she's Jewish, which is a kind of a terrifying moment in the book when you yeah. realize that she knows because she has this power now to destroy her, you fear, certainly cause her many problems. That's an amazing feat. Yeah, she starts talking about her, her racial burden, she calls it. Just such a horrible yes. terminology. Good to read about, but you realize that, like Tony Soprano and The Sopranos here in the U.S., you, you realize that's not even an anti-hero. It's somebody who's doing horrible things. So you have to keep that front and center. I think you do that very well. Hannah is indeed willing to do anything asked of her to support Hitler, but she is very full of herself, very interested in that image. She has that chest that she feels is made to wear that iron cross. She doesn't want to be a circus act. She has one experience that brings her down to earth a little bit, pardon the pun, at the Berlin Motor Show. She's called upon to demonstrate an early helicopter. Talk about that and how she gets a little bit humbled there. Well, she's meant to be the star attraction at the Berlin Motor Show in 1938, which is a very prestigious event to which a large international audience has been invited. And Hitler wants her to really make the headlines around the world. So she's already been the first woman to fly a helicopter. She now becomes the first person in the world, male or female, to fly a helicopter inside a building. <laughs> Just incredible, really. It's the great Deutschlandhalle that was built for the 1936 Olympics in Germany. And... She gets in her machine and she flies it and loops around the auditorium close enough to blow all the gentlemen's hats off with the propellers. And then she brings it down to land in the center and steps out doing the Nazi salute. And they're expecting it to be this such an incredible spectacle. But in fact, people don't really understand how important it is, what a difference a helicopter is to a normal plane. In those days, it looks quite like a plane. The propellers are on to sort of scaffolding towers where the wings would be. So it looks rather more like a plane than, than what we would consider a helicopter today. It's called an autogyro. And they're not quite so impressed as she would have hoped. But she manages to pass off the blame onto Ernst Udet rather than taking any of it herself, coordinating the spectacle. And her role itself was fantastic. But um, yes, I think she's, the whole thing of it unnerves her slightly because she's billed, she sees herself billed as not really in a particularly respectable way. There are listings of entertainments by blackamoors, so termed, um, because it's all about Nazis, Germany's colonial past that they're trying to build upon. So they've made a sort of horrendous village that's meant to be sort of representing the German empire and so on. She finds the whole thing, I mean, she's not worried about the racism inherent in that. She's worried about being seen as one more act rather than being this wonderful, uh, important power behind the Fuhrer. 
and that's really where she wants to be positioned. There's a small amusing incident with Melita that made me smile. And these are the kind of things that if you're a writer and reading history, you say, well, that gets uh, four stars there. And you say, I'm going to put that in the book. And it's when she's waiting for her husband or she's meeting her husband and she finds out that at his Luftwaffe base, they don't serve any alcohol. It's a dry base. Mm -hmm. And so he won't be able to enjoy his glass of wine at night. How she solves this problem, I thought, speaks to how she solves her problems as an engineer, how she solves the problems of all these roadblocks thrown in her way to being a woman pilot, to getting in that seat for the first time. And, and it's a nice story. It's just a human story. So tell that story. Okay. It is rather lovely. I mean, it's, it's that you can write a book like this set in this context, and yet it has got a lot of quite funny little anecdotes on both sides. Both the women seem very human, and of course that's why it catches you when you really feel what it's about. But so on this occasion... Her husband has been posted to a training camp where it's dry, so there's no alcohol allowed. And she manages, she knows that he loves a really good fine wine. So she manages to get herself posted out to the nearest city to give some talks or to do some work on engineering out there. And uh, while she's there, she goes out and she gets, because she's very important, um, she's been given the Iron Cross at this point. So she gets fated and taken around to a load of bars. Every time she goes to a bar, she asks for a large glass of wine. And she has this copious handbag that comes up in several <laughs> scenes in the book. Um, and, and it plays these wonderful roles throughout her story. And in this case, she's got some empty bottles hidden in her bag. So whenever the gentlemen go to the toilet, she just pours all of her wine into a little filter into the bottles and then carries it off to the camp for a night of romance with her husband. <laughs> just marvellous. Just such a, just picturing her there, look at her on the cover of the book and you can just see that or the pictures that are in the book. It's just such a human moment. It's something she cares so much. And I think if you love somebody, it's the sort of thing you think, yeah, I would do that. Or if you just don't want to be following the rules, which she didn't want to do either. She didn't want to be told what to do. It's just so many things about her character that tells you. I just thought that was a great little anecdote. Students of the Nazi era will recognize that Melita, speaking of that husband, her married name is von Stauffenberg, and that is related to Klaus von Stauffenberg, who headed the Valkyrie plot to kill Hitler, had a key role. How is she connected to the Count exactly, and what were her thoughts as they ramp up to taking out Hitler? Well, she's very involved in all of this. Her husband is called Alexander von Stauffenberg, and he has a twin called Bertolt von Stauffenberg. And they had a younger brother called Klaus, very famous for the most well-known attempt to assassinate Hitler. And Melita's husband, Alexander, he is, he's a very gentle person. He's a poet, a historian, an academic, not a natural soldier at all. And she spends quite a lot of time trying to get him reposted away from the front. Klaus is a natural soldier, a brilliant soldier, and he, he disapproves of her machinations on behalf of his older brother. But she does manage to get Alexander posted to Greece and different places which are less dangerous. But Klaus is in and out of Berlin more often, and she's very close to him as well. They're very good friends. And the wonderful thing is her diaries, her diaries actually cover this period. So we see that in the weeks and the days before the Valkyrie plot, while he is coordinating things, she is meeting with him more and more frequently. And one of the things she does is she provides a safe space for the conspirators to meet to work on their plans because she, as an important 
test pilot and engineer, has been given access to a yacht on the Von Sea Lake, which is in central Berlin, um, for recreational downtime. And this a yacht on a lake is somewhere that nobody can overhear them. It can't be bugged. They know they're completely private. So she finds that all of a sudden she's taking Klaus and Bertolt and the other conspirators out sailing, um, clearly not for the fun of sailing because this is just weeks before they attempt to take Hitler's life. And in fact, two days before the assassination attempt, she is staying overnight in Klaus's Tristanstrasse flat in central Berlin, which is really conspiracy HQ at this point. So there's no question that she knew what was going on. Later, one of her friends who survived the war did say that Melita had told him that Klaus had asked her to fly him to and from the Wolf's Lair, which was Hitler's Eastern Front HQ, where the assassination attempt was going to take place. When it came to it, he actually found a different way to get in that would arouse less attention, so he used that. But she was clearly there all alongside in the work on this plan. And of course, we tragically know that that plan failed. Klaus did manage to set the bomb off in the map room, very close to Hitler, but unfortunately the the big oak table blew up and effectively acted as a shield to prevent Hitler from being killed, although he was slightly injured. And Klaus didn't know he was dead and got back to Berlin and over the next 12 hours, unfortunately things went awry and he was dragged down and executed. And of course there were repercussions hugely. They arrested thousands of people. It was an opportunity for them to arrest all sorts of people, whether or not they were arrested because of their connection to the plot, but just because they were seen as potentially against the regime. And Melita and her husband, who was actually in Greece, miles away, both of them were arrested. And, well, without giving the whole plot away, she actually manages to talk her way out of imprisonment and dedicates the rest of the war to working on behalf of the rest of the family members from the von Stauffenberg family, including Klaus's four young children who had been arrested as well and separated from the rest of their family, his widow who's in solitary confinement in a concentration camp. When I think of my image of Melita, it's one of her friends described seeing her. She did her full day's work doing her engineering and her test flights, and at night she would go onto the airstrips with a shotgun and shoot rabbits And then she would kill them and cure them. And she would take them and bed linen and biscuits, anything she could get her hands on, and fly over to the prisons, the different concentration camps, and drop down whatever she could to try and help the prisoners survive, and giving them both physical help with food, um, but also sort of moral help that they hadn't been forgotten. If she couldn't land, she would just circle over the camp so that they could see her and know that someone was working on their behalf. Um, And just the most incredible woman, incredible story. And of course, we have these two women, one of whom is involved in the most famous plot to try and kill Hitler. The other one actually tries to save his life in the last stages of the war. So when I was researching it, I had this image of sort of like a strand of DNA spiraling upwards, or perhaps two different airplanes spiraling upwards, because they're they're almost doing this dance. They know each other, they work at the same airfield, they're meeting at the very prestigious Berlin Aero Club, but they're on opposite sides of the war, really, and uh, their stories sort of intersect and separate again throughout. It was a beautiful thing as well. Yes, it's a mirror there that I was going to say. My next question, here you have Melita offering to fly a conspirator into the wolf's lair and help him to kill Hitler. And then you fast forward a bit and you have Hannah turning up at the Fuhrer bunker in Berlin, offering to fly Hitler out and save him, saying, come on, please get out. You have to be saved. The Soviets are closing in on Berlin and she's there. Again, a complete 
mirror, a complete evil mirror of the other side where she's risking her life, Melita, to bring comfort and save the lives of people in the camps and try to end the war by killing Hitler. And then here you have Hannah, who is trying to save Hitler, trying to prolong his life, trying to help him to continue the National Socialism that she is a true believer, a fanatical believer in at that point. That's an insane moment. This, These two women are so connected here to so much that's going on in those 12 years of the Nazi regime. Talk for a moment about Hannah in the fear bunker. What is that moment like? And is that something she talked about frequently or did you have to dig that up in your research? The book is full of these incredible stories, but this is another of them. So she has a very close friend of hers called Robert Ritter von Grime, who coincidentally was the first person to ever take Hitler up in an aeroplane in 1920. Anyhow, he gets called to Berlin in the very last stages of the war. And this is now a besieged city with a Red Army encircling it. And Hitler calls him into the bunker to receive last orders. He doesn't know what they are. In fact, he's going to be promoted to become the last head of the Luftwaffe, although the Luftwaffe is so destroyed at that point. It's, it's kind of a ridiculous, it's lunacy to risk another life to bring him in. He could have said that over the phone. But anyhow, <laughs> von Grime is going in and he asks Hannah to go with him because he knows that she is a brilliant pilot and she knows the airspace above Berlin very well. So they're flying in, take several different planes, they get shot at on numerous occasions. And at one point, they're, they're in a Fizzler Storch, which is a sort of light aircraft. It's a reconnaissance plane, really. And they're flying in in this machine and the army see them, the Red Army below, and they send up some anti-aircraft bullets and the, the plane gets caught in the flak and it shoots through the nose of their little plane and it shoots through Von Grimes' legs and he slumps unconscious from blood loss over the controls and Hannah actually leans over his shoulders to safely land the plane on the main east-west access in the middle of Berlin and uh, manages to drag him out and get him to the bunker where his life is saved by Hitler's personal surgeon, Dr. Stumpfegger. And Hitler greets them and says, you know, at last there is some real honor in the world. Well done, courageous woman, and gives her as a gift a couple of cyanide tablets, so poison to kill themselves, so that he says they can have freedom of choice should, you know, the very worst happen, very worst in his eyes. And so then they spend this surreal two days in the bunker while von Grime is getting his strength and Hannah reportedly begs Hitler to leave you know she could fly him out but he refuses to go and she meets all these you know she meets Ava Braun who's there and the children of Joseph and Magda Goebbels they are there with their six children in the bunker she offers to fly the children out but nobody wants her to and then Hitler finally gives them final orders to take out so then they're the last people to take the last orders to fly out of the bunker and uh, they're also given a couple of other things. Joseph and Magda Gerbils give them their last letters to Magda's older son by a previous marriage, which she takes. And Ava Braun presses a last note for her sister into her hands. So she takes that. And for all Hannah's talk of honor and duty, which is uh, her constant refrain to justify herself, she can't resist taking a peek at these letters. And uh, she's kind of okay with the Goebbels letters, but she doesn't much like Ava Braun anyhow. She thinks she's a bit jumped up. And uh, she reads her letter and she thinks it's embarrassing that it shouldn't be allowed to fall into, you know, the great history of the Nazi state that will follow. So she tears it up and throws it out of the aeroplane. So we don't have that document. Oh, my gosh. Um, but it's this, yeah, extraordinary, extraordinary that they manage to get out again as well, um, which they do. But the war ends just a few days later. And just after they leave the bunker, that's when Hitler marries Ava Braun. And then, of course, they take their own lives. So they're right there. These key moments throughout the war, they're right there as witnesses. It's amazing. Oh, and you asked about how I accessed that story. 
The story is fairly well known because she put a version of it into her memoirs. But also she was eventually caught by well, a British officer, handed her over to the Americans and the Americans interrogated her. And we have those interrogation reports and they were later used in an account by Hugh Trevor Roper, who published a book decades ago. And she actually took great issue with his using her words. And she said that it wasn't what she said and so on. And I've checked it against the original reports and he did quote very accurately. And she said those reports, she never signed them herself. But, you know, this is not a witness statement in a law court. These are interrogation reports. You don't generally ask people to sign them off. They are considered (laughs) true because they're verified by the American officers taking the reports down. So I don't think she has a case to stand on then. So I think we can accept that this is the version of events that happened. I jotted down when you said that the book is full of these incredible stories. That's certainly true. We've only scratched the surface here, and I hope people will be tempted to buy the book by all the things that we have hinted at here. There's so many stories I haven't really even touched on. Melita and the the many years, I mean, she has to live years under this with this secret that she has a Jewish grandfather. Her father was born Jewish. We also mentioned that there are indeed many books on the Second World War. So in closing, I wanted you to make a pitch to our listeners. Mm. What have you done as an author? What were your goals as an author to make picking up the women who flew for Hitler something that will give the reader a fresh bird's eye view of this conflict and these two women? Well, there's a number of things, I think, incredibly, that I've been fortunate enough to be in position to tell this story because it does give us a different perspective on the war. For a first thing, it looks through women's eyes. And there weren't very many people. I mean, there are obviously female civilians. We have some of their stories and some of those books are very powerful, but we don't have any other female pilots. And the only books we had are Hannah's memoirs, which were translated, and there's very little on Melita at all. This is not an attempt to look at good Nazis. I hate that phrase. And it's not an attempt to look at nasty women. It's trying to look at two very real women whose different beliefs, decisions and actions place them on opposite sides of history. That's what makes it so fascinating. It's about looking at the grey. They were somewhere between complicit and culpable. They weren't actually there at the camps doing the terrible stuff themselves, but equally they had some knowledge about it and they made choices and they compromised. So this is about real lives and that's the fascinating question, isn't it? What would we have done in those positions? Well, here we are able to look at that to some extent. Um, But the other thing, the thing that this book gives us with real clarity is this incredible story. You know, here is a regime that bases a lot of its policies on the biological premise that the position for women should be the domestic sphere, you know, Kirsha Cooker Kinder, church cooking and children, and yet gives its highest honours to two women in this very masculine world of flight, especially test pilot flight, you know, with pioneering, not fully developed equipment. And this regime had no place at all for Jews. And yet one of those women was considered by the regime to be Jewish and still given, both of them were given the Iron Cross, highest honours. It's just an extraordinary story. Certainly is. And I want to thank you so much for coming and chatting about the women who flew for Hitler. I have to thank MC Fontaine of the Bletchley Park podcast for putting the book in my hands. I saw it on his Facebook page and I was writing him an email saying, you have to put me in touch with this author, just as he was writing me an email telling me to <laughs> to get in touch with this author. So I think that that was certainly destiny. A string of destiny runs through the women who flew for Hitler. So I hope that we're 
doing our part to share this story, to share this view of these two women. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about them. I wish you the best of luck with this book. The sign of a good book is that I feel a little bit scared that I might never have read it. So that's certainly how I feel about this one. I'm really happy that it was put in my hands. Thank you so much. It's been really good talking to you. Thank you. The Heinkel 111 bomber, one of the most common types in use for air raids, carries a crew of five and mounts three guns. One in the nose is used for attacking other planes. That in the rear is a weapon of defense against fighter planes. The gun below is for further protection or machine gunning ground forces. The gap in the Heinkel's field of fire was found to be a vulnerable space covered by none of its guns. This analysis opened up the new technique and fighter pilots learned to come in along this blind spot in a beam attack. Again, the book is The Women Who Flew for Hitler, a true story of soaring ambition and searing rivalry. Or in the UK, you can find the same title, and the subhead is The True Story of Hitler's Valkyries. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage, the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just a few extra taps of your finger, you can help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Claire Mully for joining us and for introducing us to these two women who played a unique role in pre-war flight. For more on our guest, visit ClaireMully.com, follow her at ClaireMully on Twitter, or toss a like to Facebook.com slash ClaireMullyAuthor. Her name again is spelled C-L-A-R-E-M-U-L-L-E-Y. And while you're online, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. That's it for this high-flying installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. We're up to 30, and they're all five stars. Really appreciate that. Well, until our next flight into the past together, thanks so much for time-traveling with us today, and have a great week. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to meet. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.